Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. This episode is a little bit different. Uh, my wife, Roisin, and I have just had a little addition to the family, so I've had my hands full with baby Donica. So instead of me, you're in the far more capable hands of my friend and colleague, Dr. Sharon Green. In this episode, Sharon leads us up a hill in Kildare, the famous Dune Olena, one of Ireland's ancient royal sites, where she meets a team of American archaeologists who are seeking to reveal the story of this enigmatic monument. It's a fascinating episode and I hope you enjoy it. I've just walked up a very steep hill in County Kildare. My name's Sharon Green and I'm an archaeologist working with Abarda Heritage. And for a change today, I've taken over the mic for the Amplify Archaeology podcast. The hill I'm standing on is a pretty significant hill. It's called Knockallan to some people or Dunallinia, which is one of the ancient royal sites of Ireland and the one-time royal site of Leinster. We've come up today to meet people who are taking part in a field school excavation, um, which is being directed by Dr. Susan Johnston and Dr. Uh, Professor Pam Crabtree. Um, we'll be talking to them, we'll be talking to a couple of other people and a couple of the students and finding out their impressions of the site, the story of the site, the archaeology of the site, and maybe a little bit more chat along the way. So we're going to chat now with Dr. Susan Johnson. She is a lecturer in archaeology at the Department of Anthropology in George Washington University. And she's also the director of the excavations here at Dune Olenia. And I'm going to start with a really easy question, Susan. Uh, what is Dune Olenia? Some might have heard of it, maybe. Um, and some people might even be aware that it's a royal site. But what does that mean? And what is it? So... The term royal sites is, is, is a complicated one. Um, it comes from early medieval documents um, that probably are not any earlier than eight or 900 uh, AD. And they thought that there were a series of sites that were very similar to each other, and they thought they were sort of the seats of royal power, the places where the kings lived, basically the equivalent of what those kings, the early medieval rulers, lived in, mm -hmm. but much earlier. And so they talked about these four amazing royal sites. And Dunalanya was one, Tara is one, Rathcroen, Kruchen, and also Navin, um, Owen Macha. And so um, the name royal sites kind of stuck. Now, whether or not you could call the people who used Dunalanya royal, I think is a debatable point. It, um, it was probably a place where people gathered. Mm -hmm. I, I would assume that elite people were here just because whenever you have big large gatherings in central places you have rich people that's kind of universal as near as i can tell and so the idea that people gathered here to perform ceremonies and do rituals and probably trade and sometimes sell things and and probably i don't know pay their cattle tax or something um and so uh, the idea that elites were here and therefore in a sense it's kind of a royal site I don't think is mm -hmm. entirely wrong. But certainly um, I think it's probably not entirely accurate to think of this as a place where kings were crowned or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think it is something perhaps a little bit more communal. Although 
I'm sure that there were people here who had more power than everybody else and to some extent directed it. So conventionally, those four are considered the royal sites. Uh, Ishnok probably belongs with that group. Cashel probably belongs with that group. That one's a little uncertain. Um, and there are certainly other smaller sites which probably are part of the same group. But mm -hmm. Dunalnya is generally considered to be the royal site for Leinster uh, in uh, the Iron Age rather than in the early medieval period when it becomes something else. Okay, good. Well, that's a good start. And it's interesting that you mentioned places like Tara. People are a lot more familiar with it. Um, and you walk up onto Tara Hill and you can see the lumps and the bumps and the enclosures and the mound and all the rest of it. When you come up to Dunolan, you walk up this big steep hill, the massive bank and ditch that enclose the top of the hill, they're obvious. You'd want to be blind not to see them. They're <laughs> huge. But when you get up into the, into the enclosure, there's not a lot here, really. It just looks like a field. So can you describe a little bit for people what is here archaeologically? That we're, What are we missing? Um, and, you know, what, what is underneath the ground that we know? So I, I have to defend the bank and ditch because I am cr incredibly impressed by the bank and ditch. And I think, which is not to say that was what you were saying, Sharon, but I think people often underestimate how difficult it was. It, you're right. It is massive bank and ditch. Um, and if you stand in it now, it's, it's you know, parts of it. I, uh, one of my colleagues who um, I think you're talking to later, um, Zenobi Garrett, estimated that in the deepest part of the ditch, you could actually stand a giraffe in it. Wow. That gives you, a, that's a good visual. And so it's a, it is a massive undertaking. So, um, however, having said that, um, yeah, there is nothing on the surface now that you can see that is obvious. Uh, it is a cattle pasture. Um, mm. it, the, the, it, it is one of, it is the only, I believe, of the four royal sites uh, who is, that is in private ownership. Um, and so it is used as a cattle pasture. Uh, and so um, looking at the, the views are spectacular from here, but the, uh, there is nothing sort of to see on the hill. Mm. Um, however, in the past, uh, excavations uh, have been done uh, at several different periods. Uh, the first ones, the site was actually first described by O'Donovan in the 19th century as part of the Ordnance Survey. Um, and he walked up here and, and famously, at least famous to us, said, the wrath is prodigious, which we just think is a great quote. Yep. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, uh, he first recorded it and, and made a little plan of it. But then um, Bernard Wales at the University of Pennsylvania came and excavated uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. And what they found was a series of just massive timber structures, um, some of them sort of between about 15 and, and almost 30 uh, meters across, mm -hmm. um, a series of them. So um, in the Iron Age, they built a uh, initially a single... Um, circle, a palisade. So imagine a ditch with a series of upright posts that probably touched. So it was sort of like a, a wooden wall. Um, if you're from the U.S., you think about sort of, you know, log cabins, that kind of thing. So, um, and then they took that one down. They built a second one, a massive um, figure of eight structure. So it had a big, uh, large enclosed, circular enclosure, again, with that palisade, those upright posts all the way around set into a ditch. Two of those and then off of one end of it, a smaller enclosure. Um, and then that was approached by a, a sort of V-shaped entrance feature, um, which went right the way down the hill, past the bank and ditch, and probably continuing on down the hill. Um, but the bit between the bank and ditch and the summit of the hill was lined again as a palisade. 
Um, they found evidence of those posts when they did the excavations there. Um, then they took that one down and they put up another one, the last one uh, in the Iron Age. And it, it was a large, um, again, several circles of a palisade and then a much smaller one, only sort of six meters across, um, that was, um, it, it, it had posts in it, but the posts are not next to each other. So there could have been space to get into it, which is interesting because there's no obvious entrance to that one, um, yeah. which is kind of weird. Um, so that one then was the final one. Uh, and then they took down at least part of that, we know for sure, uh, after that, and they had a series of feasting events, which we know because they dumped loads of animal bone, um, some of it burned, um, and it was sort of cattle and things like that, things that people would have considered to be sort of wealth objects, mm -hmm. but not things that ordinary people would have eaten on a regular basis. There were some sheep, some goats, stuff like that, um, some pigs, but much of it was cattle, and they, they seem to have eaten it somewhere. We're not exactly sure whether they literally sat and sort of threw the stuff over their shoulders um, or they did it somewhere else on the hill and then mm. sort of dumped a load of stuff. But there's a series of deposits that cover that the remains of that last structure. Yeah. Is, is there any evidence of anywhere that the, the meat is being cooked, any big fires or... Anything no, like that? there's no evidence of that. And that's kind of, that's what's interesting. And I mean, it is possible that um, it was sort of cooked and then brought up here that seems mm. I mean I, I'm maybe I'm lazy I you know to me you drive the cattle up then you do you know you slaughter them you cook them and you have your thing because then they can do the walking <laughs> um, but the it is possible they cooked it somewhere else and brought it up um, yeah. um, I the the um, I mean uh, again, my colleague Pam Crabtree, who I think you're, you'll be hearing from, but uh, she can tell you a lot more about the, the animal bone because that's her specialization. But um, most parts of the animal are up here, which suggests that the whole animal was up here. Mm. So that's a roundabout answer to your question, but the answer is no. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> we have, nobody has ever found where they were doing all this cooking, and it's, it's large amounts, so it yeah. must have been somewhere. Yeah. But it's a you know, 13 hectare site, so there's a lot that we haven't we yeah. haven't stuck a spade into. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting that you say the size. I mean, you, you really don't get a true impression of the size of this field, this enclosure, until you come up here. I mean, it's archaeologically, it's a huge, dense area of, of features and things underneath, part of which has been examined at this stage. Um, and we were talking off mic earlier on about the shape of this field and, and you know having walked up the hill a few times myself it's not an easy walk I would definitely drive the cattle up um, and in my mind when you're up here there's no flat summit area in my mind I mean there, where the excavation is happening this year when you get up there you feel like yes this is the summit you can see 360 the whole way around um, but when you're sort of slightly off the summit you can't see a lot of the rest of the summit um, so, it, you know, it's interesting from that point of view. Yeah, it, it's, it's, the, I'm fascinated by the, I am fascinated by this hill, <laughs> for, just in general, but I, I, I find the shape of it very interesting because it, um, as you said, we were talking earlier about this. So if you look at the other, the, so the idea, I should have said before, maybe, um, the idea that the royal sites actually aren't, the idea that they are similar in some way. Mm. Um, isn't just a fiction of, of the early medieval period. They do share a series of characteristics and they are broadly contemporary with each other in terms of their date. And so um, the idea that uh, 
these were sort of different versions of the same thing. Um, you know, one, you've got you know, one, one in uh, you know, Connacht and one in Ulster, and you've got one in Leinster and one in Meath, and, and maybe one down in Munster, depending on how you see Cashel. And, and so, um, but one of the interesting things about that is uh, the other three all have central mounds. And Dunalnia does not have a constructed mound. And so Bernard Wales argued at one time that um, the way the, the hill is structured, it looks like a mound. It, it visually is the same sort of experience as seeing a mound. Um, as you say, you, can, you walk up the hill, um, and when you walk up, at the, if you are at the bottom of the hill, you really can't see the summit. Yeah. Um, or if you're at the bank and ditch, I should say, mm-hmm. um, you really can't see the summit. So as you walk up the hill, suddenly there's a point where you sort of get there and you're like, oh, okay, there's the summit of the hill. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. And so visually, maybe the natural feature sort of was enough that they didn't feel the need to change it in any way because you got that sense. Yeah. Um, and I think that would have been heightened to a great degree. You know, I, I always envision people sort of walking. Um, Dunalnia sits right on the edge of the Curra, which stretches away to the northwest. And, and so I, I always envision people sort of walking through the Curra. I don't know why. There's no reason you had to walk <laughs> through the Curra, but I just like the idea. Uh, and so walking through the Curra, coming up the hill, going through that sort of palisaded entranceway, mm. um, where again, you can't see anything. So you're in sort of a, like a, a large corridor in a sense. Mm. And then you sort of get to this point and there are these incredible timber structures sitting on top of this this hill and so I to me the visual I think is really part of of the experience of being up here yeah it's it's interesting I mean because for me I don't live very far away I'm in South Kildare and I've approached here from the south and I regularly drive past on the M9 motorway Um, it's a very hard hill to see I've had people in the car and I've wanted to point it out to them going, you know, that's, you know, the ancient capital of Leinster up there. And they're like, what, behind that tree? <laughs> it, it's very hard to see. But when you sit up here, it you really see the command it has over a huge landscape. I mean, when you're up there on the summit, you're looking to the west, you're looking across to Leash and the hills over in Leash to the north. As you say, we have the Curra and you can see way off into uh, Meath you know, start veering around to the east and you're looking over to Dublin, the Dublin mountains, and then we have a lovely view here of the Wicklow mountains, and you look down south along that corridor down into Kildare, which, you know, is the ancient routeway that heads heads to the south. So I think when you're up here, you must have a great sense of centrality, maybe, to, to all those places. And I wonder, did people come from all directions? you know, to, to gather here. It's, it's just, it's an interesting thing to contemplate, I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true because I, I have to say, so I, it's a long story how I ended up working here. Um, but, uh, I had done some work on some of the finds from the sixties and seventies before I was ever on the site. Mm. And I had seen pictures of it, you know, and you've seen photographs and that. And, <clears throat> Because of the nature of the hill, it almost, when you see photographs, it's, it almost looks flat. It kind of flattens out in the mm. landscape. Um, and so um, I, I, I literally, I was in Ireland and I was like, I, I want to go see this, this hill. And so I, I literally just drove over here and, and I asked some guy um, who was walking. I was like, so is there any way to get access to the hill? And they, he pointed me to the Thompsons and I, I knocked on their door and said, hi, I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> Remember Bernard Wales? I know him. Um, and they were incredibly kind and let me go up up on the hill. And I was, I was, I, you know, 
it's not an American expression, but gobsmacked. I mean, it was, <laughs> I, it, I, it amazes me. You're right. There is when you, I mean, I, I never want to lose sight of how the hill looked to people in the landscape because I mm. think that's part of this. Absolutely. But I absolutely think you're right that when mm. you are up here, there is a sense that you are in an important, like a central place. You are rooted mm. in, a, in a landscape that just stretches all around you. Um, and, and that's definitely, I think, part of the experience of here as well. Very good. You mentioned Professor Bernard Wales there from the University of Pennsylvania, and he first came here in the 1960s to excavate. What brought him here? <laughs> so, um, on the one hand, uh, Bernard, Bernard was English, um, and he had done a load of archaeology elsewhere, um, but he also... Um, was there were excavate I think the excavations at Navin had just had started just a little bit before I think um and I he knew um Waterman Waterman yeah, yeah. Waterman um he knew Waterman who did the excavations there and that may have been part of the reason he was sort of thinking about Dunolnia hmm. um as I, as I said, O'Donovan in the 19th century had sort of speculated that this was the royal site that the documents talk about. Uh, but nobody knew for sure. It could have been almost anything. I mean, there's some very large boulders up on top of the hill that are probably natural, just glacial erratics. Mm. But um, there could have been a megalithic tomb up there. You know, nobody really knew what was up here. Uh, and so, um, so I think that was part of the reason was he was just sort of looking to do something, you know, in that kind of time period. Um, and there was money available at the time. There was a, there was a lot of sort of joint American Irish stuff going on at the time. And so he had access to funds and, and so it was considered to be sort of a joint American Irish project, although there weren't any sort of, um, Irish archaeologists as a far, I mean, other than sort of people working on the site, but I mean, mm. it, he was the director of it. It wasn't like yeah. a joint thing at that level, but, um, but there was funding. Um, yeah. And so um, they came out here and they did some work in 1967 uh, and decided that there were things up here. Mm. And so they started the excavations in 1968. Yeah. Uh, Obviously they discovered a lot of the features and things you were describing earlier on. Um, was he pleasantly surprised by what he discovered <laughs> or was it all a bit of a shock or was it what he expected? I, well, I mean, I, I, I think they all knew that there was something up here. Hmm. Um, I, I, I would, I'd have to say, I mean, I, I had never, I've never asked him that, um, but I certainly, I certainly think he was delighted. Um, he, he was, uh, he, sadly, he passed away in 2012, but um, he was utterly delighted. He loved archaeology. The man loved archaeology. Hmm. Um, and he was enjoyed very much sort of, you know, sort of working here and, you know, the things that they found. Um, they, for obvious reasons, decided to focus just on the summit, which was a, a sort of logical thing to do. Mm -hmm. And that was where all these timber structures were, again, makes sense. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think he was uh, fascinated by it, Yeah. Um, you know, because it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's, on the one hand, it's a, it's an obvious thing. You build it enclosures, timber enclosures, but then what are they, mm. right? So it's one thing to sort of talk about how it is that there is there are timber enclosures up here, but then what did people do here? What were they for? And yeah. that, I think, also sort of fascinated him. Very good. Um, so you then are the next generation, so to speak, to come and excavate <laughs> up here. What brought you back to Dunolin? I mean, you, you mentioned the first time you came to visit and you were gobsmacked, but what 
made you make the decision to come back and excavate? Because I was gobsmacked. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we, um, so when Bernard excavated, he, as I said, focused on the summit of the hill. Um, but it's a, it's a massive site, it's 13 hectares. Um, I sort of did some rough sort of back of the envelope calculations once and reckoned that maybe 10% of the site is what he excavated. So he did, um, you know, and, and I mean, I, you know, there's a lot more to do in that sense. Um, so anyway, um, we decided, we were sort of interested in, all right, so on the summit of the hill, there's all these timber structures, but that's, a, that's just 10% of the site. The rest, is the rest of the site empty? Um, is it full of structures? Were there houses? I mean, you know, nobody really knew what was there. Um, so uh, we got some funding from the Heritage Council in Ireland, um, to do uh, remote sensing. They had just started doing the, the remote sensing project at Tara, and they were finding really cool stuff. And so I thought, we could do that here. That'd be cool. Um, so uh, we worked with um, some archaeologists uh, from uh, Galway, uh, Roseanne Scott and Jared Dowling, um, and uh, we did uh, what's called a magnetometer survey. Um, it's It's complicated technology that I have to admit I don't fully understand but the gist of it is that the earth has a magnetic field when you dig into the earth you either change the soil properties and or you also sort of introduce stuff into it that changes the magnetic signature in that spot in subtle ways and so if you systematically measure the magnetic signal across an area then you can dump all that into a computer the computer converts that to a grayscale and so the darker areas are areas that people have disturbed in some way. So if you dig a ditch, you can see a line and things like that. So we did a magnetometer survey over the entire uh, interior between 2006 and 2008. And that's when we found, we, we found that there were tons of structures. There's lots of little enclosures and other things that um, we found a, 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 it turned out that the timber structures were part of a much, that, that figure of eight one that I talked about before, um, that one actually was part of a much larger structure. There was a, a pal possibly palisaded, we don't know for sure, but at the very least an enclosure around the, that ringed the entire summit of the hill. Mm -hmm. And that, that figure of eight structure s sits in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, um, there was a lot up here was yeah. sort of the, the result of that particular study um, to excavate. <clears throat> yeah, and to be investigated. Um, and so you've ex you came back in 2016 to start excavating, um, which I have as to you confess, well know. as I well know, because I was lucky enough to be here, um, although you didn't put me in the most interesting part of the hill. Well, but, it could you know, have been. We'll let that slide. <laughs> I thought it was. Yeah, well, it wasn't. <laughs> so um, you came back in 2016, and apart from, unfortunately, the last two years, you've been coming back ever since. So No, actually, we just missed 2020. We were here oh, it was last just 2020. Year. Oh, yeah. you were here last year. Yeah, yeah. I forget. Um, so, you know, has what you've come back to discover, has it, has it sort of verified what was in the geophysical surveys? Has it surprised you, pleased you? All of the above. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah so we, in, in um, 2016, we started working with, um, so there's a, a, an archaeological field school in County, in Trim, in Meath, mm. um, at a site called the Black Friary, um, which was a medieval monastery, and uh, Finola O'Carroll runs that, and I've known Finola for hundred years. Um, and uh, so she, we put together this idea that we could do a field school. And so we could train students to excavate, expose them to Irish archaeology, which is mm -hmm. fascinating, um, and Irish culture and all the other 
things that come with that. And so um, in 2016, um, we did that. We started that. Um, and uh, we, um, we were here in 2016 and then 2018, 2019, 2020. No one went anywhere. Um, but we did actually come in 2021. We all had to quarantine Gosh, for a week, yeah. which was hilarious. Um, we had to sit. We were at uh, this place called the Marino Institute in Dublin, which very kindly allowed us to stay there for a week in quarantine. And then once we tested negative, they let us go. Um, so uh, it was great. I will say, I have to say, it, at that group, it was a very tight-knit group, in mm-hmm. more than uh, the others yeah. in many ways, I think, because of the quarantine. But anyway, um, so, uh, and then uh, this year, and so... Um, we did excavate. We excavated that um, the that enclosure uh, that rings the summit that I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, we excavated in the entrance of that, uh, and we also excavated in a feature called St. John's Well, which Sharon is bad mouthing now, um, <clears throat> because I did. I, I still I still maintain that it. I mean, it was there in the Iron Age. Mm-hmm. And you can't rule out the possibility that they... I, the fact that they didn't leave anything there is not my no, fault. No, that's, that's, that's entirely... I agree with you, but, uh, you know, I suspect <laughs> it got cleaned out on a regular basis, yeah. and that's probably why there was nothing in it. So. I think you're right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Disappointing, nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, since 2018, we've been excavating um, two enclosures that sit just outside... Um, the the big one that Bernard Wales excavated, the big ones, um, and uh, there there's two sort of overlapping enclosures. We haven't completely excavated them yet, so I I'm not entire still not entirely sure what they are, mm. um, but we do know that we did get some material for radiocarbon dating, so we did date them to they are contemporary with the uh, timber structures, <clears throat> which date to sort of the um, the very last part BC and the very first couple of centuries AD, sort of in that time period. Um, so they were there when the big timber structures were there. They're smaller. Um, the, the bigger ones, not quite 20 meters, but, um, but, um, but they are still enclosures of some kind. And we're, we've been sort of slowly teasing out what it is that they are. It's interesting. I mean, the site has such potential to tell us about this period that is still pretty hazy really our actual understanding of what's going on so for me that's one of the most interesting things about it um so i think we've established dunalina is a significant site it has a lot to tell us about this story not just of leinster or this part of leinster but later prehistory and into the early historic period generally for the whole island really um but most of you who are here today are based in america um all the work obviously is carried out with the support and the necessary permissions of you know, state bodies and organisations like the National Monument Service, National Museum, Heritage Council, Kildare County Council, I know have been involved. Um, but there's a really important local aspect to this as well. You've already mentioned the Thompsons, who are the landowners. Um, so do you want to say something about the, the sort of local interaction that you have when you're here? Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, one, of the things one of the things that I find very compelling about this place is... It, Dunalnia has been a through line, like literally since 3000 BC up until today and presumably into the future. Um, and it, I mean, there is, there is evidence that people were here in the Neolithic um, in, so there's sort of stone tools and things like that. Um, you, we occasionally find little bits and pieces. Um, you know, it was a major site in the Iron Age. Um, 
People stopped doing anything as near as we can tell, sort of large scale and organized in the early medieval period, but we know people were up here. We occasionally do find evidence from the early medieval period up here. Um, it was very important in the documents. Um, it was sort of a, it was kind of used, I, I think, kind of as a place marker. You know, they talk about, I don't think, I'm skeptical that some of these things actually happened the way they, they described them, you know, mm -hmm. but yes, there was a great battle at Dunolonia, you know, and I don't know, maybe there was, but, but there was, you know, they weren't living up here then. But anyway, um, it was a marker on the landscape. You know, um, they were up here in 1798. Um, they, uh, you know, O'Donovan noticed it in, in the 19th century and remarked on it. Um, so it's been this kind of continuous through line. Um, and now it is very much um, part of this community uh, in the sense of certainly the local, the Kilcullen Heritage Society uh, is very involved in, in what we do. And they have been utterly amazing um, in because uh, we bring students. And so we have homestays. They stay with families in, in the community. Um, and people have been incredibly generous doing that um, and have, have certainly fed my students very well <laughs> um, and showed them around and showed them sort of you know the best parts of Irish culture um, and and um, you know I usually try to give a talk when I'm here and it's usually well attended and people keep me for hours afterwards asking questions which is great because I love doing that um, we occasionally have open days on the site um, and so and people come up uh, and that's really great too because it um, because Dunalnya is not in state ownership because it's private land it's never been developed the way Tara has as a tourist site and so a lot of people don't know it's up here um, and and we did an open day in I think it was 2019 um, and people came up and said you know I just lived down the road I didn't know this was here and it's mm -hmm. fantastic and and so um, it's a way to kind of you know talk to people about kind of the community and, and I, I sort of see Dunalnya as that kind of that through line, you know, it's, it's a place and it's always been a place mm. and it's still a place that people, you know, find really important. Um, and, you know, it has been, um, uh, along with, uh, five, the five other sites that I mentioned before, um, has been nominated for UNESCO world heritage status, yeah. um, which I think, I certainly think it should be. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it, it it's, I am sure people have seen it differently over the centuries, over the millennia, yeah. but it has been a consistent place that people have found to be important for a very, very long time. Very good. Um, where can people find out a bit more about the excavations and that, that kind of thing, if they want to find out more about it? Um, so uh, the excavations themselves, um, I mean, I... I am required legally <laughs> to publish reports on the excavations. Um, I would do it anyway, but, uh, but, um, uh, those are available online. If you Google my name and Dunalnya, you will probably find them. Um, so that's, those are technical reports. Um, but we also, um, there is a website. I will have to find the actual address and what's it is. It is sort of being designed. Um, but, um, my colleague Zenobi Garrett has has put up a website, and I have to. I'm not sure what state it's in right now, but okay. um, I'll ask her about that. Yeah, you can ask her about that. But um, uh, that has information. Um, there is, uh, you know, occasionally there is something in Archaeology Ireland uh, about Dunalanya, uh, and so uh, there's 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 information out there in various ways. Um, and like I said, I usually do a talk every year, yeah. um, so you can. Um, 
Okay, look out for local things like that. Okay. Um, One final question. It's a it's a two part, I suppose. What do you see is the future of Dunalinya, and you know if if the excavation money fairy or the research money fairy <laughs> came along and said, "Here you go, you can do whatever you want." Uh, what would that be? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I. I I, I don't know what the future, I mean, if I could predict the future, I'd be a whole different person, I suspect. But um, I have no reason to think that this place will stop being important. I mean, it, it's been important for thousands of years. I see no reason for that to stop. Um, as long as the site is protected and, you know, doesn't get quarried away or anything like that, um, you know, I I see no reason why it won't continue to to feature prominently. Will it mean the same thing? No, probably not. But it's meant so many different things over the centuries that, you know, who knows what it will be. Um, but I, I, I think a lot of the meaning of this place is just inherent in its nature. And so I think from that point of view, there's no reason to think that people won't find it meaningful in the future. Uh, what that will be, I don't know. Um, as for the money fairy, yeah, if you've got the money fairy there, I'd like to know. I wish it was in my back pocket, but no. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, you know, there's there's a lot of technical stuff I would like to do, analyses and things that are expensive. You know, I mean, it costs, what, 300 quid or something to do a radiocarbon date, just one date. I'd like to have several dozen, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, honestly, I'm very happy with what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the students, um, the students are great. Uh, you know, I'm teaching them how to excavate in a place that I love. And yeah. so, you know. What more could you want? You know, I, yeah, I'd love to have a ton more money because, you know, I'd have a better, I'd buy, I could buy a car. <laughs> <laughs> That's going off topic. Uh, you know, yeah, I, you know, everybody would like more money. Uh, yeah, don't get me started on rental cars in Ireland this summer. Oh. But, um, um, but uh, you know, as far as that goes, um Apart from, a, there's a lot of sort of technical analyses we yeah. could do that might be interesting. Um, but, you know. You're happy to keep things going I'm, as I'm they are for now. I'm happy to keep things going, things going as they are for yeah. now. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for chatting to us, Susan. And uh, enjoy the rest of the dig. It's only early days. You only started desodding yesterday. So no great <laughs> discoveries yet this year. But we look forward to hearing some more. So thanks a million. Thank you for having me. It's great fun. I never mind talking about Dunolonia. Or talking to you, Sharon. <laughs> thanks. So now I'm chatting to Professor Pam Crabtree. Uh, Pam is a zoo archaeologist, so a specialist in animal bones, and she's Professor of Anthropology in New York University. And Pam, this year, 2022, is a very significant year for you and Dune Allinia. Would you like to tell our listeners why? Yes. I was first here in 1972 when I was just beginning my PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was working with Professor Bernard Wales, who was then the director of the site. And it was um, the first time I'd had a chance to dig in Ireland as well, because I had dug in the UK when I was an undergrad. Yeah, which is amazing. So it's the 50th anniversary of your first time here, which is great. So... First of all, when you came here in in 1972, what was it like? What was your first impression of the site? It was, Ireland was a very different country 50 years ago. Um, And we, 
the excavation was run in a way that's different to what we're doing now, that we worked for a, a good solid two months. We came in early June and we left, I think, at the end of the first week in August. And we had um, an equal number of American and Irish um, supervisors, uh, you know, graduate students on both sides, about maybe six of us um, each who were doing the fine excavation. But we also worked with a lot of workers who were doing the taking the sods off and things like that. Um, and there were a mix of older men who were looking for a little extra income and a lot of people who were, you know, in U.S. would be high school students, kids who were 15, 16, 17 years old, not, you know, not ready for university. So it was a very, very big operation. And the old farmers were wonderful and they were full of um, tricks on the students. If they knew where you were working, they would hide little plastic golf tees and see if you <laughs> found them. And uh, so it was, it was a very different world. And, um, the area as well was radically different, that Nace was a tiny town and we stayed in the one hotel that was there and now it really is suburban Dublin. Yeah, very true, very true. So your involvement with this site on and off, obviously mm. you haven't been coming back every year, um, but it's sort of taken place at the beginning and the end of a half century, which obviously, as you say, Kildare and Ireland has changed an awful lot, but archaeology has changed as well. So, and I know your work, your career has brought you all over the world to work and conferences and things. Every time I talk to you, you're heading off somewhere else still. Um, but what do you see have been the biggest changes in archaeology that you've observed, you know, here in Ireland or at this site? Oh, it, the technology has just advanced dramatically. Um, in the original excavations, I believe in either 70 or 71, they did some very primitive cesium magnetometry. Mm. And basically what they found out was, well, there's some kind of a big anomaly in the center of the site, uh, which we knew. Um, and now when we were here in 2006, 7, 8, we were able to do um, modern magnetometry throughout mm. the entire region. Because again, one of the original problems that was that Bernard Wales excavated for eight seasons and did between five and 10% of the site doing two months a year for all those. And if you sort of extrapolate that method out, we would be digging into the 22nd century to do the whole. <laughs> and with the magnetometry, it's really helped us guide. You know, we can see things that we know are geologic. We can see features that appear to be archeologic that we can focus the excavation on. And also now, I think the other difference just practically is that the program that I came on was funded for mostly graduate students, whereas now we're able to bring our undergrads and give them an early experience in archaeology while they're still undergraduate students. Okay, very good. Um, so I was chatting with Susan and she was describing the archaeology, the features and so on. And one of the sort of important things that's turned up in the excavations are these masses of animal bone from the Iron Age, which are associated with uh, feasting of some sort on the site. Now you're an animal bone expert and you've looked at these bones. Um, so apart from allowing us to suggest that feasting was happening, or you might say something about why we can say it is feasting, um, what else can we learn from these animal bones? Do they give us an insight into maybe farming practices of the time or the, the economy or things like that? Yes, I think there's quite a bit that we can learn. Um, one of the things that I think is now clear that we did not know even, let's say, in the 80s and 90s is that um, we're really looking at what were probably cattle, which are the most common of the animal species at the site, being drawn from a dairying economy. Because on the one hand, we're seeing lots of very young 
cattle under six months of age, a lot of them perhaps around three months. And then when we look at the older cattle, we're seeing older adults, including a, no, a good number of females. And that would be the kind of mix that you would expect with something we'd see in dairying. And up until probably the early 90s, it was thought that dairying was really, in Ireland and more broadly, was really a um, early medieval um, and later medieval adaptation and that we certainly wouldn't see it in the I I Irish Iron Age, and we wouldn't see it in earlier periods. It's now very clear that we are seeing in many parts of Europe dairying with cattle as early as the Neolithic, intensive dairying perhaps later on, but it is mm. one of the strategies that's being used from the very beginning, so mm. that's exciting. Um, the second animal we're seeing is pig, and again, pig makes sense in a feasting context. Um, up at um, Navin, it's the most common animal because the only thing you can do with a pig is either keep it or eat it, that it doesn't produce any secondary products like yeah. wool or milk and so on. Um, and the other numbers, I would say, one of the things that struck me is the number of sheep is relatively small. We don't see any goats, which again would be different to something like um, Dublin, where we see a lot of goat mm. material. And um, there probably would have been a lot more sheep in the overall economy, I would think, than what we see at the site. So it looks like selective, uh, strongly selective for cattle and pig for the feasting activities as opposed to what we might yeah. expect. And the sad thing is even now sitting in 2022, we don't have that much um, good animal material from sites that are outside the, mm. the so-called royal sites. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I was saying that to Susan that the, you know, these sites are so important for telling us about this still very hazy sort yeah. of period of time that we're trying to understand better. So you've seen a lot of developments on this site. You've seen a lot of information come out of this site over the last 50 years. Where do you see things going in Dunalinir? Or where would you like to see things going? What kind of additional research maybe would you like to see done? Oh, this is a great question. Um, you, Alison Casali, who's been one of our longtime participants at the site, she received her PhD this fall. She defended in September. It was on Bronze Age ornaments, and it was brilliant. She got a small grant from the Prehistoric Society to try to do some um, isotopic research on our cattle because up at um, Ian Maka, they found that not only was pig the preferred feasting food, but the pigs were not local, that they were coming from a broad area in Northern Ireland. And we now have the kind of data using strontium and other isotopes that we can perhaps see who was bringing the feast. Are these you know, people coming from the local Kildare area, or is this a broader a part of um, southeastern England? So when she gets here, we hope that she'll be able to choose some samples from the cattle, and we've made an arrangement with the University of Cardiff to um, do, the do some isotopic work with us. Yeah, that, so, that would be fascinating. So, yeah. yeah, I'm really, really excited about this. And this is where, again, on the um, animal bone side, the technology has changed so much because of isotopic work and ancient DNA. And these things weren't even thought about yeah. when I was doing my PhD work in the 70s. But even a very simple thing that struck me while you're talking, you were talking about sheep and goats. But back in the day, because sheep and goat, certainly as we were always taught, the bones are so similar, it was always sheep slash goat, and you couldn't be too sure. Nowadays, we know more you know, we can use new techniques. Yeah, and it's, you know, beyond, you know, if we had something we absolutely had to know doing some ADNA work, um, there's been a lot of work. Um, the initial work on sheep versus goat was done back in the 60s, and, you know, with 60 years hindsight, some of it's very good and some of it probably not so good. 
But for a long time, there were certain anatomical elements that we thought, okay, these are fairly easy to tell apart. Um, the uh, Some of the phalanges, the, the metapodia, um, the um, distal humerus, proximal radius, things like that. Um, and one of the things that was always challenging was teeth. And of course, we have lots of mandibles, maxillae, individual um, teeth. And starting in about 28, 9, 10, there were some good publications on distinguishing sheep versus goat teeth. And in terms of understanding the economy, that's really important. And again, we're not seeing a lot of goats here, but um, the fact that we can now confidently say that what we have are sheep, we can then look at, okay, what's the age structure of the population? What are they selecting from? Things like that. So the technology is just the transformation in the 50 years since I was a student is just amazing. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Um, and I suppose as a, as a final question, how does it feel coming back here now at this stage in your career? Well, on the one hand, I can say I was 20 and um, I think three days after I received my BA when I first came here and I am 70 now, so I'm a little creakier in turn, but I can still um, use the shovel and pull the buckets. It it really, it feels like home, uh, that it's the one thing I can say in my life that has gone on from the time I was a student to the present. And even though I, have, I haven't come for 50 years, um, it's just, it really, I love working in Ireland, it, and it just feels like home. That's lovely, and I think that's a really nice point to stop. So thanks a million, Pam. So now I'm chatting to Dr. Zenobi Garrett. Now Zenobi, you first came here as a an NYU student back in 2007, uh, but at the moment you're actually resident in Ireland. You're a postdoc researcher in the University of Limerick on the OS 200 project, which is to do with the 200th birthday of the Ordnance Survey. That's not what we're here to talk about today. So we're we're talking about doing all in you. Um, so you first came, as I say, with Susan in 2007, and you were working on the Geophys Survey. What was it like for you when you arrived here first? Well, so my first time here was 2007, like you said, and that was my first time in Ireland. And I had also, I was starting a PhD with Pam um, in the fall. So she, I had gotten in and she invited me here. So it was, it was really exciting. Um, it was an amazing summer. That was a summer that was very wet. The next <laughs> summer was very dry. So I got the full gamut of Irish weather. Um, but it was, I had never been to such a big site before. It was really interesting um, to come in and see a site that is both locally known and also unknown. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. And then in 2007, when I came, they also did a book launch because um, the monograph for the original excavations was published. And that was really exciting to be a part of because Bernard Wales, the original uh, excavator was here and there was many town functions. And so it was exciting to come in and see kind of the community archeology span aspect. So that was really enlightening and fun and something that I've continued to enjoy while being here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, as you say, that you know, the site is known, it's one of our royal sites but it's still pretty unknown mm -hmm. uh, partly because of the private right ownership and, and you know there isn't the general access that some of the other sites have but it's really good to know that it, it it still has a place in the local community and people still want to know about it and they're curious about it and and i think they're very proud of it i get the impression yeah i, I mean i would be 
I am proud of it, and I don't, I don't even live in the local yeah. community. Well, for a certain amount of time, every other couple of years. <laughs> um, so, since you came the first time, um, you've been coming back for the field schools. You've been working with the students, teaching them surveying techniques, because that's your, your key area of interest. Um, but recently as well, you've been availing of some new technologies to learn more, not just about what's up here on the hill but the, the broader landscape what can you tell us a little bit more about that what kind of techniques have you been looking at and what have you been able to learn right yeah so one of the things that i'm interested in for my research is kind of what dunallen would have been perceived of in the larger landscape so people may or may not have been up here every day but they would have been in other localities too so what did they think about the site or did they think about the site at that time so um, I've been there they did a lidar survey in 2006 I think by the discovery program and they've recently done a new one mm -hmm. um, that was funded by the Kildare County Council I believe and that was great because it has the Kura, Denalen and Old Kilcullen all all LIDAR surveyed. Mm -hmm. And so that has shown, there isn't a lot of information about sites on the Knock Allen Hill, but I know that there's a lot of potential for new sites on the Kura. Um, so that's really exciting. And then we have looked a little bit at the LIDAR and what was interesting about that was there's not a lot of features, but we were actually able to find the original excavation pits, which has really helped us tie that data okay. into our current data. And then another strategy we've used is looking at satellite imagery. So in 2018, I'm sure everyone listening will remember, it was very hot. Mm -hmm. um, and a whole slew of you know things popped in the landscape. So that was really informative. And then there's also, there's quite a bit of aerial photography from the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. So um, through the Cambridge Aerial Archaeological Program, I think. Sounds right. <laughs> there, there, it's an acronym I don't remember, but it's it's at the University of Cambridge and it's online. And so we've looked through those photographs mm. to find um, potential sites in the area. So my interest is if this is a royal site and if the royal sites have some kind of thematic theme to their landscape, right, of being mm. ritual landscapes, you know, where are the sites around here and how might those sites be organized similar or different to, say, Navin? or Rathcrow and Artara. Hmm. So that's something I've been interested in doing. So we've been kind of finding those sites and also using uh, like the gray literature, like the excavations.ie um, to fill in kind of the blanks around here and to really make a case for the potential of the landscape so that I would love to do more survey in the area. Yeah. So that's okay. something that would be great. Well, that ties into my sort of rounding off question that I've been using for everybody and I suspect you have a good answer for this, is, you know, where do you see the future of Dunalina? Ideally, what would you like to see done? That's, that is a great question. Um, for me, I mean, I love the site. I love being able to come up here and I know how special it is to the community. And so I think it's a great site, but I would like to see more done in the environs. Mm -hmm. So looking at, you know, how sites like Old Kilcullen or sites on the Kura may or may not have played a part um, in the Dunallen landscape. I would love to do a series of kind of, uh, not just survey, but also kind of doing some testing to try and get dating material to understand the changing nature of this landscape, right? Um, from prehistory into modern times. Yeah. And see how all these different sites are 
tying into each other. Yeah, exactly. Tying into the whole story. Yeah. Okay. So we need to get the uh, research fairy yeah. to provide us a few funds for that. I'm here every day, <laughs> Monday through Friday, research Great. fairy. Okay. Thanks a million, Zenobi. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, with me now, I have Paul Fingleton. Paul has an Irish accent. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike the others we've been talking to. Um, and Paul, you're here as a supervisor and you've been coming back. Normally you work in commercial archaeology. I do, yeah. Um, for the most part uh, in Ireland and abroad. Um, so, you know, you started coming here in 2017. 2017. For yeah. the field school. How does working in commercial archaeology compare to working on a field school? Uh, the... The archaeological processes are obviously the same, but uh, in terms of uh, other differences, yeah, it's it's a different, slightly different pace. But we then we have different kind of expectations, and um, we're looking for slightly different outcomes in terms of teaching the the students mm. the processes of excavation and recording of the archaeology. Um, but it's it's interesting. It's fun. Um, it's it's nice to work with a group of really enthusiastic uh, students, but uh, no, like yeah, I, I really enjoy it, and I do like um, you know first and second year archaeological students. They've got some interesting theories on the practice of archaeology in general um, outside of Ireland and in Ireland. So it's it's cool to hear their thoughts, opinions on what we're doing here and what's the differences between what we do here and what they do in America. Yeah. Yeah, very good. And then for you coming to Dunal, you know, you know, one of our important royal sites, you're a Leinster man. I yeah, I'm from Leash. Yeah, from yeah, Leash. Probably nearly see home from here. Yeah, yeah just about. Um, you know, what was it like for you coming up to such an important site? Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it's it's great. Like, like it's it's somewhere where I had never actually been uh, up on top of. I've been kind of around Kilcullen and the Curra. Like, I mean, it's yeah very frequently growing up and uh, no it's brilliant to be up here um, mm. and it's actually yeah it's, it's really good we kind of get friends then for the open day we'll come up and check out what's going on and people in the area that I'll be friendly with that we can kind of have, uh, have a bit of access to the place as well when I'm up here so it's great. Hi my name is Sydney Green and I'm from New York University. Hi, I'm Ava Thompson and I'm from the George Washington University. Very good. So I assume for both of you, is it your first time in Ireland and certainly on an Irish excavation? Um, it is actually not my first time in Ireland. I have been up to Belfast before, but this is definitely my first time on an excavation and I must say I'm having a great time. Okay. Yeah, and I've worked in labs before. This is my first time on site and I was in Dublin for a few days beforehand, but I've never actually been to Ireland before, I guess, last week. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's very early to ask you really your full impression of what it's like being on an excavation. You started yesterday and so far you're doing the wonderful job of desodding, which is taking the turf off the top of the site. Mm -hmm. yes. And for anyone who's never done that before, I'd say even though you're on day two, you've got some sore muscles. Definitely. Um, <laughs> I would say some sore muscles more more so sore hands than sore muscles um mm. i wasn't expecting as many uh hot spots or blisters on my hands so far none yet but we're getting there i would just say it's it's fun to like see the sod be taken off and mm -hmm. kind of estimate our progress and we're betting on how long it's going to take <laughs> but 
I think we're having a great time doing it yeah. so far. I still say 2.30. Um, <laughs> but I realized very quickly on that I was... I'm very short, so I'm very bad at getting the shovel enough pressure in. So I started the dirt collection squad, which is just me picking up all the blocks of sod and bringing them <laughs> to the little fortress of sod that we are making. Um, and I've been told that it is the biggest sod hut that we have ever made. Okay. Well, you know what? Everyone has a role and that's the important <laughs> yeah. thing about it. So are you excited to sort of see what turns up this year? Do you have any ideas in your mind from talking to Susan and Pam about what you might be finding? Oh my God. I'm so ecstatic. We have haven't found anything of importance yet um except for you know some bits of quartz that we're all super excited to pick up a shiny <laughs> rock and pass it around but i think from we had like a an orientation mm-hmm. kind of three-hour session earlier in the week and we talked about what was there and what we might find and what we would see and it was uh, like i've always been obsessed with things like older things in museums and even mm-hmm. as a kid so it's probably what led me to this path but even thinking about see like touching and seeing something that someone thousands of years ago would have touched and interacted with is kind of messing with my head (laughs) because I come from a place where like a lot of buildings and there's not really archaeology around where I'm from Mm. so having something that I can touch and interact with is definitely a, a quite an experience yeah it's it's really exciting and I'm sure you've probably handled things in the yeah. lab as well and you know knowing that having that connection to something mm-hmm. so far back but then being on site it's a little bit different because you could be the first person to touch Ever that touch. since yeah you know. no, um, we worked with like Achaemenid period bones from Uzbekistan so vaguely around the same period that we're touching right now but yeah. it's completely different environment also i realized i have to learn all the new colors to bones because different soils make different colored bones and i'm like scared that i won't recognize yeah (laughs) and the the zoo archaeologist in me is like oh oh i would be so disappointed (laughs) but it's exciting i mean the potential for what's going to happen over the next few weeks so i just wish you all the best um, and hopefully you manage to turn up something really interesting. Do let us know. Thanks. Yeah, we definitely will. We're hoping yeah. for the same. Yeah, we hope, yeah. <laughs> We're hoping for the same. Yeah. So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology. I'd just like to thank the excavation team, especially Dr. Susan Johnson, Professor Pam Crabtree, Dr. Zenobi Garris, Paul Fingleton, Sydney, and Ava for all of their time and their insights into this fascinating project. And I'd also love to thank Sharon and our brilliant sound engineer, Declan Lonergan, for doing such a fantastic job. Recording live on the top of a hill in a live excavation is no easy feat. But please note that Do Not All In Itself is on private farmland and visits are not possible without prior agreement with the landowner. And we're grateful to the Thompson family for allowing us to visit during the dig and to them and the crew for their warm welcome. You can find links to more information about the dig on our website at the show notes in this episode page and you'll find that at abataheritage.ie along with our back catalogue of podcasts as well. You can hear more from Sharon in our latest tour talk. That's a series of online lectures we've been doing on Irish archaeology and heritage. Members of our tour can find a recording of the talk in the online courses section of our website. If you'd like to dig deeper into the stories of Ireland, I'd hope you'd consider becoming a member yourself. You can find out more at tua.ie, that's T-U-A-T-H-A dot I-E.
E. But for now, I'm looking forward to seeing you again in the next episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Thank you and take care.